Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is CM Alexander with a special editorial. I would like to announce to our listeners that we have not been entirely truthful here at Dairy Public Radio. Since the inception of this local newscast, our fellow anchor, Joshua Khan, has been, in reality, a pseudonym. My pseudonym. I'm Joshua Khan. (coughs) And you're listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And Benjamin Graham. Hey, constant readers. Today, we are going to wrap up the last half of the dark half. So chapter 17 through the end of the book. Uh, If you are reading along, then you've already read this. If not, major spoilers ahead for this book. Uh, Today, Ben is going to be leading our discussion. So Ben, take it away, Uh buddy. Excited to get into the dark half of the dark half. <laughs> Some grim shit happens. Yeah, it does. First impressions. It, it builds so well, I think. I, I started getting just intensely drawn in. It's you know, like a lot of his books that once that, uh, that tidal wave starts crashing, mm. you can't put it down. And so I read all of our assigned reading in two days. Because I was just like, all right, I'm all in. Let's do this. I would just like to say that... Hundreds of birds were hurt in the making of this book. <laughs> the, the finale, leading up to the finale, once Thad evades his escort, from then to the end, it, it just goes and goes. Yeah, it's just wall-to-wall bonkers. Yeah, but before we get into the second half, I wanted to talk to you guys about something I feel like I didn't quite... I wasn't able to articulate something I felt about the first half of the book. Okay. And that is what kind of book this is versus what it could have been, if that makes any sense. I think so. Uh, Let me explain. Because I kind of have a thought in that same vein. Yeah. uh, In the first half of the book, Thad talks about how the George Stark books are inspired by these mystery novels, these crime novels. They are constant movement. The, The characters are more machine than man, you know? And as a stand-in for King, you would assume that King is also inspired by these books. Right. Why isn't that this book? (laughs) (laughs) Because the first half of the book, when compared to the second half, is so goddamn slow. Yeah. Are you saying you don't think it works, or you do think it works? I think the ending makes up for it. The second half uh, completely makes up for it. But reading through the first half, there are so many long sequences. It takes so long for the characters to discover what we, the readers, just know. And there could have been another book where... It's like, is Thad George Stark? You don't know. Well, no. From the get-go, we know George Stark mm-hmm. is out there right. murdering folks. Just murking motherfuckers. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I feel like yeah. King could have just committed to it and had a whole book of just Stark level of action. Yeah. Like and we if, don't get if that. If Pangborn had physically seen George and knew for a fact these were two separate people Mm -hmm. from early on. And so we didn't have to spend all of those chapters of 
Pangborn just hanging out at their house and yeah, drinking yeah. beers, talking about what could or could not be possible. That is not even half as exciting as George's, though, well, that's which true. is part of the story. I mm-hmm. mean, that they're trying to tell. I understand what you're saying. And I think it would have been a really interesting book if it was more of that fast paced action, disturbing, you know, all the way through. Right. But the fact that it's not really serves for me to set apart Thad and George. And it makes George all the more exciting. I yeah. am afraid to say how I feel about the character George Stark. <laughs> oh, podcast and his motivation. Terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we will definitely get into George Stark as villains go, as king villains go. Really, really dark character. Really up there with mm-hmm. brutality. And, well, yeah. and he gets kind of more rounded as the second half of this book goes where we're just seeing the murders in this first half then in the second half he spends the time he spends talking to liz but uh that there's some human conversation there that's there's a line that speaks to that he says i may be a monster but I have feelings. Does he say that out loud? There's a part of the book. He alludes to it, yeah. So he's he's a monster, but he's a monster with feelings, and he feels like that's what makes monsters even scarier. Right. I think it's really interesting, Ben, kind of back to the point you were making. Reading the first half of the book is like reading one of Thad's books. And the, the parts that George is in, those parts that are more exciting and interesting and are kind of a different style, that is the peak of George that we're getting through Thad, kind of like how the fan figured it out, you know, oh, yeah. that he wrote these chapters in these books that were just really visceral, like a George Stark novel. Yeah, I like that. That mm-hmm. uh, I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that makes a lot of sense. Anyway, I just wanted to talk about that and feel like may- maybe I'm just being too critical <laughs> Uh, trying to punch up Stephen King's work. <laughs> Sorry, I like Steve. It. Yeah. I, I really did enjoy the book. Uh, and let's get into the plot. Uh, anybody want to hit us with a recap? Uh, in part one, we have George Stark killing everybody who was involved in his quote unquote death and one by one knocking them down in cool and interesting ways and very terrifying ways. And then in the end, we still have uh, Pangborn doesn't quite believe that any of this is possible uh george has called while under surveillance while the house is under surveillance so he tells thad that oh i'm crazy and i'm gone and we all know that it's a setup and then george reveals we're gonna write a book together or else i'm gonna murder your whole family in terrifying ways you missed the most important part josh yes i mean that was good but thanks uh, liz had miscarriages Oh yeah! Oh yeah! The, that's the most important piece of information really important in that Liz was thrown down an escalator. Information that never comes up again. <laughs> there are so many things that are set up in this book that just never happen, and I there's found that every opportunity to put twins in this book. Yes, yeah. it's just having her miscarry twins and then them eventually have twins is just like, hey, guys, don't forget twins are a thing. As we the, the very beginning of this chapter, I think, is called oh, Wendy yeah. Takes a Fall because Thad's not paying attention. She falls down the stairs, gets a bruise, and then William has the same bruise because that's how twins work. Twins having twin magic. One thing I found really fascinating as, you know, after George calls Thad and he's telling him we're going to write this book together and Thad is having this realization that if he does this, that'll be it. Like he's somehow George is going to take over. He's going to be gone. And he says, a sick, brilliant mind. He thought the new Thad Beaumont 
would be a good deal less clumsy and a good deal more dangerous. And mm. I was so fascinated by that idea throughout, you know, as he's trying to figure out what to do. And then eventually when they start writing together and, you know, Liz, we'll get to this, but bringing Liz in that and her observations of George and then of Thad. Well, and that's right around. I think it's in that area where he says, uh, he questions whether George was ever his, where it's that, that part. I was like, Oh damn. I didn't even think about that. This he, cause he still has no idea where George came from. Really? Like he doesn't mm-hmm. know about the, the twin inside him. And so having that realization of like, maybe I didn't even create this. Maybe he was a part of me all along and I had no control over this and it's just happening. Which leads us into him realizing that he has this connection. Once again, realizing something we have known for chapters. Right. But Thad is finally being active. He tries to make the sparrows fly. And that does not turn out well. (laughs) One of the coolest sequences in in the book, CM. He's at his desk and he's he's trying to feel out that connection with George Stark. And he's like you said, he's trying to make the sparrows fly. They kind of meet. And I can't remember the way they describe it exactly. It's kind of like when they're on the phone, like they feel their brain feels connected somewhere in the middle. George, I believe, is asleep at the time. So he is totally Mm -hmm. caught off guard. And when Thad starts digging and prying, he's getting honest answers, answers that George does not want him to have. And when he puts pencil pencil to paper and he feels the almost from his like just above his wrist that he can't feel anything anymore because the hand is just yeah it's like writing. it's not his arm it's, yeah. it's george's and it's writing what we already read from uh miriam's murder because mm-hmm. i believe that is the, the direct text that's in the book and i was like oh that's nice and creepy i like that a lot <laughs> It's described uh, in the book, Thad says he feels like he's going through Stark's subconscious hall of records where everything is neatly written down and filed away. Where have we heard that before? Carrie. <laughs> yep. It's uh, That's a recurring uh, yeah, We're going to hear it in Dreamcatcher. Yep. And I just thought that was an interesting. <laughs> King has a, an idea of how the human brain works and it's a filing cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> You know what makes me really sad about this scene, though? And I want to get this in before we talk about how it ends, because I'll seem less crazy. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I felt sympathetic for George Stark for a minute as he's describing the connection on his end as being like a dream that Thad was with him. He was in his bed and they were talking and whispering together like brothers. And it was it was like a, a comforting, an odd but comforting feeling at first. And I thought... Why am I sympathetic to George? <laughs> right. I, sh- I should right. not be. This should not seem like a happy-ish kind of thing. It's, it's, it's intimate. Live. Yeah. And that he, uh, when he's writing all these things before, because he's, he's writing answers, writing questions and then writing his own answers. We're making that connection uh, come through. And then after writing about the murder, he writes, if I, if I don't, I'll die. Like, why do you need yeah. to write this book? If I don't, I'll die. And that blew my mind. Okay, like this is, I mean, I get that he was hoping to be written into life, but the fact that he, George Stark himself, needs to write in order not to die. Very literally. Very yeah. literally. And it was, I was not expecting. And he doesn't know how to write. Yeah. Yeah, Thad has to teach him. 
That yeah. was which that's that's so awesome. <laughs> it's just so cool. If I would like George Stark if he hadn't senselessly murdered a bunch <laughs> of innocent people. <laughs> yeah, he's being dis- he's described as so charismatic. But that's the way that he he so was written though it. to yeah. be this this like like you said like this robot criminal. He's and and as we get into it, he's described almost supernaturally the things that he's able to sense and do and even people who are trained like you know alan pangborn no okay i i can't i can't try to take this guy down he would stop me before i even finished forming the thought of what i would do in my head mm-hmm. yeah so this sequence of the the automatic writing that thad does he's reaching into stark's head and it ends in a really kind of iconic because it's so such a king moment he's writing and he's grasping the pencil so hard and stark starts fighting back get out of my head there are no sparrows and thad grabs the pencil that he has in his hand and drives it through the webbing between his thumb and forefinger oh i cringed i started (laughs) flexing my hand (laughs) i read that and the way he, when he's cleaning it up, the connection is broken and he's cleaning it up and like pouring peroxide in this hole in his hand yeah. that he says he looks at the other side and can see the tip of the pencil like mm. on the surface of his skin on the other side of his hand. Ah, <laughs> it's so disgusting, but it was, it was such a cool battle. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's a, a fight scene that no fight physically mm-hmm. takes well, and place. And George did the same thing. They're when, both stabbed. <laughs> yes, which leads to my favorite part is the next chapter being the same exact sequence of events from Stark's perspective. Yeah. Yeah. That was kick ass. And I was so excited about that. <laughs> the mirrors of how they react. Yeah, how they clean themselves up. Mm-hmm. And, and and George Stark thinks that Thad is probably kind of being a pussy about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which was unfair. Yeah. I think he dealt with it okay. Uh, Stark, yeah, says something along the lines of he's like, he's cleaning up his wound because Stark, to stab Thab in the hand, had to stab himself in the hand. Much the way Wendy and William sustained the same bruise. Twin um, magic. Twin magic. <laughs> uh, twinners. <laughs> uh, that would really suck for them in their future. Like, what if one of them has to get their appendix removed? <laughs> yeah. Or or has a, like, meet someone really nice. Yeah, and become sexually active. Like, what, what the hell was that? <laughs> what is happening? Uh, I mean, I'm not mad about it, but, like, I, you should tell me before I'm going to church. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, they both set apart a set to cleaning their wounds and Stark is like, oh, there's no way Thad is doing this. He's he's kind of a pussy. He's probably calling an ambulance right now. But Thad is cleaning his own wound by pouring peroxide. And Stark is doing it by pouring Glenlivet? Glen yeah. yeah. Is that how you sp- <laughs> yeah. pronounce that? Pouring scotch into his hand. Pouring scotch <laughs> into his hand. The same scotch that Thad goes downstairs and sees a bottle of Glenlivet. And thinks about having a drink, oh. but has a glass of milk instead. But I just thought the the mirrors between those two chapters were so cool. Finally getting to see, okay, these two guys are twins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would. I would have. I've loved to see more chapters kind of like that. Yeah, that some would have been cool from the same time. But in this scene, we also find out that George is 
literally falling apart that his his body is like decomposing and he's oozing and that's disgusting and that every time he goes to write he just writes george stark over and over again <laughs> boxy thing and it's yeah. the george stark george stark I'm, <laughs> I'm so glad you said that because i was going to ask you guys if you could help me i have something highlighted couldn't remember the context <laughs> okay. or what it meant and it is the George, George Stark, George Stark <laughs> over the Starky Stark. I was like, wait a minute. What? what? That was him trying to write the quick brown. <laughs> yeah, fo- yeah, the, yeah. The, the quick, quick fox. brown fox jumps over the, the lazy dog. Yeah, yeah I something think that's like that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's hysterical. <laughs> George Stark. It's very. Carrie! I'm Carrie! <laughs> Reminded me of that. It, it kind of undermines his uh, scariness just a little bit. But it gives us the reason that he absolutely needs yeah. that. He can't write on his own mm. or else he would do it and he could write to keep himself alive but he has to have that do it because without him he can just write his name over and over. Yeah. So then we move on. Uh, we skip forward a week. Stark has given Thad a week to start work on the new George Stark novel. Uh, Much like me, he waited till the last minute. <laughs> uh, what What's it called? Steel Machine. Steel Machine. Uh, the Return of Alexis Machine. Something to do with an armored car and a wedding. Yeah. I would read that book. Sounds yeah. great. <laughs> we actually get a, a few excerpts of it later on when the two start collaborating and i wrote <laughs> steel machine sounds fucking bonkers <laughs> and i would read that book and i would read it um anyway we jump forward a week and sad is uh driving to the college he works at because he knows his time is up and he needs to talk to george away from uh from the cops and we meet hands down my favorite character in the book. <laughs> Professor Raleigh Deliceps, who is 100% a Harry Potter character. Yeah! <laughs> I thought the exact same thing. Yes, 100% that guy is a wizard. <laughs> with with his uh, pipe that has, not, has no smoke in it, but he still carries it around, and his knowledge of myth and wonder. Yeah. Anyway, Thad drives to the college with his two cops tailing him. And we have this section where he's trying to get in contact with Stark. Do you guys... Okay, are you familiar with The Crow? Yeah. No. The movie The Crow? With Brandon Lee? No. Best movie in the world, Ben. Uh, We got to pause so we can watch. (laughs) (laughs) It reminded me of The Crow bringing his soul back when Raleigh's explaining when Thad is asking him what sparrows signify. Yeah, that they are, yeah, they are conductors. They conduct human souls from the land of the living to the dead, or vice versa. Yeah, the harbingers of the living dead, mm-hmm. which is a great band name. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. listen to them. <laughs> um, yeah, well, sparrows specifically, they're called psychopomps, and there are several kinds of uh, birds that are psychopomps, but sparrows are specifically meant to bring the dead back to the land of the living. Yeah, their job is to guide newly dead souls to their proper place in the afterlife, which is just a cool image, too. Mm. But they also mention loons are also psychopomps. And jumping forward a little, 
there's a, a segment near the end of the book where there, there are some sparrows involved in the final showdown some <laughs> uh, there are a couple sparrows, sparrows that play an important part in the ending of the book but as they're going into the final showdown it mentions a single loon cries out i, I missed that I, I missed that completely a single loon cries out on the lake and i immediately was like oh that's foreshadowing because the sparrows are here to issue to usher the live the dead to the land of the living well the loon's here to take someone living to the land of the dead who's going no one <laughs> not paid off at all anyway so we're at the college and um in this college scene i feel it's it's another instance where this was 50 pages that could have been 12 <laughs> there was just so much like going back and forth with the cops like can you give me a minute yeah, we can give you a minute. We probably shouldn't. But can you? Yeah, but we shouldn't. You want to get some coffee? It's over there? Yeah, we'll get some coffee. I'll be over there getting coffee. I, I felt cool. like we walked with him in real time up and down the hallways. <laughs> yes. I actually liked that. You I did? I loved this chapter. I, I The tension was ratcheting up so high at this point. We're finally getting into Thad is finally doing shit. He's yeah. finally trying to do something to take his life into his own hands uh, by contacting George. He doesn't know what he's doing and George has the upper hand, but he's actually, you could feel his, his fear that his time's up, the time's up and I have to do something now or it's going to be too late. Yeah. And then George calls Raleigh's phone in, in order case to. Thad's is tapped. Yeah. Even though, is. even though I love that he points out Thad probably wouldn't think of it. But I would. And then th- <laughs> going seeing that Thad is like, why didn't you call my phone? But we know George is smarter than Thad. Well, he's he's just, uh, he's a criminal. He thinks that way. Yeah. A little more. And then he antagonizes him for a while. And Thad kind of opens up to Raleigh a little bit without giving him too much information. Just lets him, gives off the impression like something is going on. Mm-hmm. And Raleigh's like, if I can help, let me know. And uh, so we have this, this face off. And he tells him, like, your time's up. Like, shit's going down. And Thad goes back to his office, sits the typewriter, and puts his hands on the home keys, and then starts typing out, what is it, uh, uh, guess where I called from? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, shit! Like, throw, <laughs> throw my book down and be like, oh, shit, he got you! Every, every movie makes, George is just a step ahead of every single thing that Thad could do. And it's just so terrifying and awesome. Yeah. Leads to, uh, he leaves the college and he ditches his cops for a second. He's like, I gotta make a phone call. And he plays up his bumbling professor uh, <laughs> yeah. bit to be like, oh, I forgot to make it upstairs. And he goes to a payphone and he calls his house and speaks to George and it's like, hey, fuckwad, what you, where's my family? And he, he can hear the babies crying in the background. And George is like, hey, man, calm down. He's so, plays it so cool and puts Liz on the phone. And Liz uh, sets up the Chekhov's gun for the ending by saying, remember Aunt Martha? Yeah. Remember Aunt Martha? <laughs> oh, I was so mad about that, too. <laughs> and there's a big hubbub that Stark thinks, hey, what, what that was code for something. And Thad says, no, it's, he's, she's just tell, tried to tell me 
that you guys are going to the lake house in Castle Rock. Aunt Martha, we used to joke that we'd hide from Aunt Martha at the at the lake house. Ha ha, it's just, don't worry about it. And Stark's like, okay, fine. But Thad knows that it was actually <laughs> because Aunt Martha used to shoot rats with a gun. Liz was telling him to get the gun out of the shed and shoot George Stark. You want to guess if it happens, listeners? I, it doesn't happen. I I was so bored by that passage that it's no wonder he forgot to do that because I <laughs> forgot that that happened. <laughs> This book has no regards to Chekhov's gun. Uh, if you see, if there's a gun on stage in the first act, it has to go off by the third. Right. Fuck that in this book. <laughs> We're throwing all the red herrings out. Yeah. You just uh, try to pick out what's actually going to happen because you're the, never going to figure it out. The sparrows are the only important part and everything else is like, everything else said is garbage. <laughs> but then we, then we get another... Uh, switch back to George, where we find all the things that George was doing while we were reading this in real time walk down the hall uh, before the phone call with that. The attack scene on those police officers out front, Mm -hmm. I was legitimately terrified reading it because of how gruesome it is. And I highlighted another, uh, another one of the passages because... Ben brought up the eye imagery and that he slices the cop's eye, <sighs> popping it open. So. I, is Stephen King a little unfair to cops? Because the way he describes <laughs> them, they die so easily and it's like they're their training never kicks in. It's not like he's so good that he gets in there before their training kicks in. They are just frozen by him. To be fair, the way he is described, I would freeze up too. I would shit my pants. Yeah, but they're trained not to shit their pants. Especially because (laughs) literally he uses the exact same trick that he used on the cops for the photographer. But but he also, we've established that he's so quiet, he closes the gap in on those guys way faster. That like he's already within arm's reach by the time they notice him. He really Voorheeses them. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He's just he's just there and the yeah. kills the one and then he slashes the other guy's scrotum open and oh Ugh. jesus and then slashes his palms and then cuts his throat and, and i was like this is just terrifying the way he's described as looking during this uh it's the first time he's described he he they they had mentioned he's falling apart that he's he's beginning to rot as he approaches these cops he removes the bandages that he has put on his face and the King really has a way with gore. He is described as having sticky, unthinkable fluid ran down hillocks of proud flesh. Now, I don't know if you guys knew (laughs) what that means, but listeners, do not Google image search (laughs) the phrase proud flesh. Oh. Oh, noted. Don't do that. Like I did. Oh, I don't even (laughs) want to know. So I had a very specific image in my mind (laughs) of George going throughout the rest of this book. Now, this is, we we touched on this a little bit earlier, but this was the point in my notes that I actually wrote down. If we changed the means and the, just kind of transplant transplant the situation that George is in, this story could be told with George as the hero. Mm-hmm. If, if he was not murdering right. slew, like uh, tons of people, if this was a story about a fictional character 
who was brought to life and then needed his creator to keep him alive. And his creator was, was trying refusing. to kill him. Mm-hmm. And if Thad had been portrayed in the way I guess we're supposed to feel by the end of the book about him, there's a part in the, the final chapter, I think, after all this has happened, after Stark and Thad go up to Thad's study to begin writing Steel Machine, Liz tells Alan... Part of Thad is crazy. Part of him has always been crazy. We never see that. It's never alluded to. It is alluded to, though. How? In the first part, when they're, I think it's when they're talking about how this whole thing came about, why Mm -hmm. he had to kill George Stark in the first place, and uh, alluding to his alcoholism and issues that they'd had. And her not liking George, not liking Thad when he was writing as George. She kind of hinted that there were some problems during that time. Alcoholism and maybe maybe he was kind of a dick. But she also specifically says, like, he was never abusive. You don't have to be abusive, though, to be intimidating or wrong in some way. That's true. And think about how intuitive she is. I did write my next note just says Liz is a badass. <laughs> she is. Uh, Again, and is can never we get given this from her, her badass <laughs> moment. So mad about it. They set it up like she's going to have one. Like when she hides the scissors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Chekhov's her. scissors. Chekhov's <laughs> knife under the couch. <laughs> never come to anything. <laughs> well, he. I do like what happens with the scissors, though. Yeah, yeah that she, was a cool yeah point. she sneaks some scissors well let's let's just okay let's okay, back we, up sorry because yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> george arrives and it's i really think the setup of him coming into her home and her reaction to him is really cool that she immediately bolts for the kitchen for a knife yeah that was the point where i was like fuck yeah liz kill this motherfucker <laughs> I, I guess I, I was talking more about the slight attraction and revulsion sort of mixed together oh yeah that well, yeah, the, well anyways he sees how he talks to her and how he handles the kids yeah and there's it's almost humanizing for this monster she sees what part of that exists in george and she can't help but like feel that way that. yeah when the he's way- holding wendy yes and she responds to him and gives him a wendy wave and is like touching his face and liz in her head thinks this the frightening thing is he's trying to be gentle and he can't be but he's tr- he thinks he's being gentle yeah uh that whole segment everything with stark and the babies mm-hmm. loving stark because he is part of their fad gave me goosebumps and that that's uh phrase in particular it's what's the first time you see that this how much this connection goes both ways because we know that thad has that uh, that admiration for george in that creepy that creepy way of like mm-hmm. george is the man i'll never be uh, right. because i'm clumsy and uh can't talk to people well and blah 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 but george on the other hand might want to be gentle but he actually just can't do it uh so then we we know that they are going to go to castle rock which we also skipped over this well because i jumped ahead but that they have the um in, in the the writing he talks about where it all started like about going home and where and home is castle rock because that is where Thad started writing the first uh george stark novel mm-hmm. so we know okay the showdown is coming to castle rock fuck yeah the evil 
malevolent power of Castle Rock. It's all Castle Rock's fault that this is even <laughs> happening. And Thad ditches the car and fucks up his own car in a junkyard, which I thought was super cool <laughs> to yeah. like disguise it. Like, way to, way to commit, buddy. You I, beat I the shit out of your to car. Do that. I would have been like, oh man, the insurance later. <laughs> <laughs> that sequence of him evading the cops and how he manages it by telling himself, just this is happening in one of your books. Yeah. And I feel like that plays into the he starts tapping into Stark and because the sequence is a very Stark novel more than a Thad novel, you know, mm-hmm. where he he pulls out into traffic just at the right second to evade the cops. It's a very cool sequence. It makes sense, too, because if if through writing this last book, Stark can take over Thad, would not Thad sort of reabsorb some of Stark into himself if, you know, Stark dies? Yeah. I would assume so mm-hmm. because they are that that bond goes both ways. So they're kind of both leaking into each other. Oh, that's a I'd, terrible I'd imagine, phrase. I'd imagine <laughs> it would be a more overt thing than it was previously, too. Yeah. Well, and Thad's from this point on, Thad is so decisive and he's mm-hmm. so direct. There's no more of this wondering what to do. He's got a plan of action, mostly because. Uh, George has left him no other option but mm. to do so. The but sparrows he... give him some courage, too, that's knowing true. that he has power. Like, that's coming from him. I found that weird because the sparrows, he doesn't know what they mean. He keeps seeing them. They keep showing up in greater and greater number. And he keeps saying, they're my only chance. But he's terrified of them. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't. But he should be, though, because he has that that warning from Professor Raleigh. Uh, no man controls the agents of the afterlife, not for long, and there's always a price. There's always a price. Which I could not help reading the second half of this book, and maybe this is why I liked the second half as well, because of the information that CM dropped on us last time about Thad's tragic future. Yeah. yeah. At, that goes on after the book. I read the second half of this book with that knowledge and there were so many excerpts that knowing what happens to him becomes so much more poignant and tragic going back to when thad had first got to his office at the college he walks in and there's a a part that says for no reason that he could place he felt a sudden and nearly sickening wave of homesickness and emptiness and loss and i i just felt so terrible for thad mm-hmm. knowing what his life turns out to be yeah that was like he doesn't know it at the time but his life is never going to be the same after this yeah he's never going to get that feeling back the part that really stuck out to me this is jumping way ahead at the end and thad says to alan pangborn I feel like you liked me at some point and that's changed and I'm not sure why, you know, did I do something? And he doesn't, he doesn't get it. And Alan describes it, you know, he's, he doesn't say this out loud to him. He's just like, I don't give a fuck. That's what he actually says. (laughs) But he says that he, Thad doesn't understand and he doesn't think he ever will, although Liz does. 
He describes it as standing next to Thad as like standing next to a cave some nightmarish creature came out of. And the monster's gone, but you still don't want to be close to that cave where it came from because it might there might be another one. You never know. Yeah. And so that's the feeling that he has about him now, which is sad considering I, how they bonded. Right. That's very ominous. Yeah. Have some feelings about that, which I want to bring up at the end of the episode. Okay. My big final question to you guys. <laughs> Perfect. We'll go back to um, Thad has evaded his police escort and he's at this junkyard and he calls Raleigh uh, and says, hey, man, I'm in trouble. I need a favor. And Raleigh comes in his shitty old VW body <laughs> because, of course, he does. Yeah. And gives Thad a bird whistle, uh, the MacGuffin of the the book, and says, be careful, and gives him that warning uh, about the sparrows. To which Thad immediately throws that, like, ah, fuck a price. Birds, take me to Stark. <laughs> yeah. <And laughs> he but... just commands the birds, and they do it. Yeah, the the they get him back later. Yeah, <laughs> when he turns around and sees the Rowley sees the twenty thousand sparrows uh, sitting in the the junkyard. That was cool. Right. He, I, I liked that character a lot when he showed up. Is like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's he's definitely somewhere in a background of a Harry Potter movie. That totally. guy's just chilling out. <laughs> we go on to we we finally get back to Pangborn, who we haven't heard from in a while. Still not doing a lot. But he finally gets his call from Dr. Pritchard, the surgeon who operated on Thad as a kid. We spend about 12 pages getting the information that, that we, we all already got in know. chapter well, one. That's, I was just going to ask, do you guys think for the reader, would it have been better to find that out then and not at the very beginning? I, I don't know. Yes. Well, for structure wise, yes, definitely. Because... Like I said, we spend half the chapter rehashing stuff yeah. that we've already and read. And I guess it would have left more of a scene. question who George actually was if we didn't have that that tumor scene. But so, it is nice. We get all the facts in that first scene of what happened with that tumor. And now hearing Pritchard tell it in his own words mm-hmm. and that it was so distinct. He still remembers it clear as day. Like he, he remembered that surgery. He'd followed Thad's career. Mm. and and showing and had known thad was the same kid because the picture in the book jacket he had the same exact eyes eyes have eyes underlined (laughs) in my notes like 30 goddamn times but he does drop some information that we did not know and that is the day after his surgery as thad was recovering the hospital was attacked by a small flock of sparrows that was pretty badass (laughs) yeah and it's cool that alan keeps that information to himself so george like he picks up on the fact that george does not know about the sparrows when they finally that they're all landing everywhere and it's like george does george not see these can we talk about alan making his way (laughs) unsuccessfully ultimately up to the house (laughs) Yes. yes My favorite part is he goes out and decides to go it alone. Mm-hmm. And he, on a whim or a, a hunch, he stops at a roadside like gas station or whatever and talks to three old ladies and asks about a Volvo that's parked in the parking lot. And the ladies look nervously at him. They're like, <laughs> uh, did we do something wrong? And he responds, no, ma'am, just like Volvos. 
<laughs> and then that's followed by that sounded just crackerjack. And I laughed so hard that instantly made uh, Alan Pangborn so much more likable to me. I, I, I already liked Pangborn. It was very endearing. Uh, just, it was so, that's such a human bit of uh of reaction of a human bit of writing because i can't count the number of times that i've had that same same reaction where i say something and i'm like well fucking good job dingus way to make the words happen <laughs> now i'm gonna commit to having said that all right. But yeah, then he heads to the house. Yeah, he's he parks away from the house to try to get the drop on George. And as he's he's driving down this lane, you know, this this lake house area, and he starts to see all these sparrows just covering the property nearby Thad's house. And so he stops a car and he gets out and he's stealthily making his way towards the house. And all of a sudden there's like a gun pressed up to him and it's George Stark. I freaked out. I freaked, <laughs> freaked out. out. But it was just like, Pangborn is like, all right, I'm going to park here because there's no way he could hear me park out here and I'll take this long path up, stay like hidden. Like he's got this this plan that should work to at least, I assumed he would at least get to the house mm-hmm. and maybe get caught then. But the fact that like he sees the house and then that gun is just right there and he just did not hear a single sound. And then Pangborn does uh something that i was like i actually wrote down oh no because he slides a tonto impression in there he was creeping up the beaumont driveway meaning to sneak across the road like tonto take him good look around get an idea how things are kimosabi i didn't like that (laughs) i wrote why <laughs> why is this the moment to bust out your sweet tonto dialogue it was it was really cool though because then we got to see how george found him he heard the car it, it was it was unnatural how far away he heard the car i think we got that backwards actually we did alan parks goes to walk then we go to george oh, and cuz okay. george is talking to liz about the book and liz actually likes the book which i bet has got to be a weird feeling. <laughs> this guy who has kidnapped you and is holding yeah. your family hostage. It's like if you ever get stuck at a party with uh, somebody who's like writing their their book or writing a play, and they're like, "Let me tell you about the story that I've got going on." Like, and there's, you can't escape that conversation. Yep. But now imagine oh, it is somebody with a gun to you and your children, and they're falling apart. Is, is that us every time we talk about our podcast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how other people perceive us when we're talking about the show. But she, like, I can't imagine how weird that that must be to think, like, oh, yeah, I could see it. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. can, you guys should get cracking. Oh, wait, no, don't! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that this is the part he's ranting about about his book. Liz goes to the bathroom and she's hiding the scissors She's going to use them and do something badass because Liz is super cool. And then Stark hears Pangborn's car and he's like, shit, car coming. It's the cops. Ties her up and uh, before he leaves, reaches down the front of her skirt or, and pulls the scissors out. And she's like, you knew? And he's like, I fucking knew from the start. Like, yeah. <laughs> idiot. Uh, it's-, it's just an extra layer of creepy. Of like, That was the moment where I was like, oh, George is... 
unstoppable. He notices every little detail. There is nothing anybody can do but comply with what George wants them to do. The, you, you can't handle him with physical means. The only thing that is going to affect this guy is something supernatural because he just sees everything coming. He notices every detail. Hmm. And that's what uh, what makes him such a terrifying villain. Oh, we we totally skipped how Alan figuring out the car thing with the guy with the garage oh, yeah. and the with summer car. Fuzzy Martin. Um, <laughs> at the same time that he got the phone call from the surgeon, he almost immediately gets a phone call from this guy saying... A black tornado just drove out of my barn, which is weird because I didn't have a black tornado in my barn. But it's cool because it sort of set up how not only did George sort of come into being through Thad's story writing and whatever else this crazy tumor thing was, but everything that he is associated with and everything he Mm. needs also shows up, although it shows up in the place where it belongs and not where is necessarily convenient for George to get to. Right. Yeah. I do love, though, that he's like, given all this detail, like, there could have been other people in the car. There's, it has a Mississippi license plate. Like, did you see the, uh, if it had a bumper sticker? Oh, yeah, I saw if it had a bumper sticker. <laughs> it said, high-toned son of a bitch on it. <laughs> and Pangborn's like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm in I'm in now, I guess. Yeah, it's really the, the high-toned son of a bitch that sold me. That kind of helps explain, I think, why he was so willing to go this solo. Yeah, he's finally realized that... Uh, everything I've been trying to fight against, there's got to be at least something true that I'm not seeing because the the evidence is all just piled up here. Uh, yeah, if, yeah. If he this find... guy can do this, then he, the normal cops are, have no chance. Right. Yeah, I believe he says uh, sending a wave of straight state troopers would be like sending men into a meat grinder. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So he goes in alone. <laughs> Which I would love to read that chapter. <laughs> right. Anyway, we don't see that. No, we don't. Um, <laughs> And what we do see is Thad finally arrive where Pangborn parked his car and there are millions of sparrows. He can't even see Pangborn's car mm-hmm. under all the sparrows. I... He drove past a field and can't see any field because it's full of sparrows. And they're they're moving out of the way of his wheels. I loved this segment because it is so Lovecraftian mm-hmm. for being something so mundane that King can take something like a sparrow, a bird most of us probably see every day, but just the idea of there being possibly billions of sparrows covering literally every surface that you can see becomes this mind-rending terror. And George is still not seeing him. Yeah. But I did, and then I was, my first note immediately after that was, holy shit, everybody's together. And this was the point where I was up until two in the morning because I could not, I wasn't going to stop. <laughs> There's only like 30 pages left. I can yeah. do this in 10 minutes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Thad and George meeting for the first time. I loved seeing it through the eyes of Liz. I thought that was a really nice touch. Because it's, again, sort of that intuition of hers and that horror and fascination that, wow, they stand the same. They smile the same. They have the same gestures. She can see Thad and George and George and Thad. There's a part where she says she looks back and forth. I believe it's when they go into the living room and Thad is like, hey, listen, guys, we're writing the book. And he totally rats her out. Yeah. (laughs) Totally denies Liz her second badass moment. She had hid a knife under the couch 
And I was so excited because after the scissors, you're like, Liz has to do something Mm -hmm. awesome. All of these characters are here. They're all going to have to play a part in taking this guy down. Nope. Nope. (laughs) Uh, Because they they lock themselves up in this mm -hmm. study with, interestingly, no windows, like nothing. It's like behind this secret shelf. You have to... Who doesn't want a secret study? I, though? That sounds true. pretty damn like cool. Like like rolling that bookcase, and then but there's it, this tiny room. So they they go into the study and they're getting ready to write. And Thad turns to Liz and says, "Go on, get out now." And as the segment says, George Stark's eyes looked out of Thad Beaumont's face. Fucking creepy. Yeah. <laughs> it, it also it makes that ending so much more intense because mm. we've we've been so focused on what's opposite about them. For almost the entire book, we mm-hmm. we have little glimpses of their similarities as we go, but the fact that once they're together, they're almost so in sync with one another that you have all those moments of seeing them mm-hmm. stand the same way, laugh with the same madness, and see those looks because now you are having them side by side. They're almost one person, oh, and all of that gets just so much more intense. I love that. So we reach the final showdown. Stark and Thad enter the the study and they have little writing stations set up side by side and they begin to write Steel Machine, the craziest sounding book that <laughs> has ever been written because Alexis' machine is hiding inside of a cake with a machine gun. Like you do. My favorite part about that was, so Thad starts writing first and then he's like, all right, man, here you go. Do it. And he seems so supportive. Yeah, <laughs> he really and, is. And George takes over and he's really into it and he's starting to heal his sores are starting to disappear his skin is getting pink and less uh, oozy and thad is starting to get sores and so we're kind of worried like oh no this is bad what's happening but then he hands thad what he's written and every other word every third word is sparrows he has no idea and outside, we see from Alan and Liz, the sparrows gathering. Then Thad takes his moment, takes that that one second that he's so wrapped up, blows that bird whistle, and then all hell breaks loose. Just sparrows shattering through windows, up the stairs, and slamming against the bookshelf over and over and over. It is such an amazing friggin' segment of these millions of birds filling the entire house crashing through the kitchen destroying things they knock over a bureau and alan is like how many fucking sparrows does it take to knock over an entire and he's like i don't want to think about it yeah and then he pulls (laughs) the couch over him and liz because Mm -hmm. they they almost can't breathe because every feasible space is filled with sparrows. The air is birds. And then not, and not only do they eventually crash through the secret door, and then they latch on and they just start pecking. That is gruesome. That is terrifying. They're just latched on, like pecking any, and like George is, you know, grabbing them and crushing a couple. And every time he opens up a space on his body, it's immediately filled with sparrows. Yeah, they're just too many. Yeah. And they're, they're trying to take him away. I don't know why this freaked me out so much, but when... Alan and Liz finally make it up the steps under this Afghan to protect them from the birds. And they're crunching over dead bird bodies. And it's just really visceral and gross. It made me want to vomit. It, yeah, it was really gross. But he he's watching the birds. They've 
they've pecked through George Stark and they're trying to lift him and and they're all like dive bombing and killing themselves and he he remembered that sparrows can't hover. I was like, yeah. oh. Oh, they just have to fly straight yeah, forward to their they're doom. They're on a mission. And not only do they break the inside of the house, but they break the exterior wall they of the house. Kool-Aid man into the house. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and then they have the, so there's the giant hole in the wall, and the birds have finally pecked enough George Stark away that they can lift and carry him through the hole, and they watch as he goes off into the distance till he's just a dot and gone. He disappears into, like, the, they describe the sky. It, it, it reminded me of, like, a kind of a portal. The sky, there's this darker portion, and he kind of disappears into that with the sparrows. Yeah. I I, I couldn't tell if that was a literal, because, yeah, they say the, the sky is dark, but in the midst of it is this blacker void in the yeah, shape of I, a I thought it was, I and took yeah, it as literal. I, yeah. I thought it could have been either way where mm. it was literally them carrying him back to Ensville or just that they, they fly away it's dark <laughs> and just the darker shade the void of a man yeah. is just what Stark is and then we head into the epilogue where Pangborn's like uh, suck my dick uh, <laughs> and then they burn down the house and that's the end I thought that was a really bold move at the end for Pangborn yeah. to be like, uh, this is just too much to explain. <laughs> it just fair. burns that motherfucker okay. down. Okay, fair. It's a lot to process, but this is my big final question I wanted to ask you guys. Is Alan essentially says, hey, man, this is your fault. You brought Stark into existence. And throughout the whole book, Thad has talked about how guilty he feels that he feels this guilt for bringing this upon the world bullshit (laughs) (laughs) uh i I wanted to ask you guys how you felt about that because in my opinion it, it was not a conscious decision he was never shown to be a bad guy he was just a guy everything that happens to him is just he's a victim of circumstance i'm gonna take the complete opposite really okay yeah only because you you are absolutely correct and that doesn't sound like the opposite i know (laughs) (laughs) no you are because who would ever write a book under a pseudonym and then expect any any part of them expect that that pseudonym would come to life and start murdering people nobody that's completely that's so unreasonable but the part that makes me respond to him feeling guilty the thing I understand about that is all of the little hints that we're getting, you know, like we talked about earlier with Liz and then Alan at the end. And George is part of Thad. And Thad likes that part. Oh, okay, I guess my problem is how literally we are supposed to take this whole book. This this book is not uh, is not exactly uh, full of metaphor. It's, nope, uh, a guy comes to life uh, <laughs> uh, and kills a bunch of people. Right. But there's so much that, like, okay, are we supposed to take Stark as a metaphor for these feelings that Thad has? I had a few times written in my notes, Thad wants Stark to live. Could it be because he doesn't like his life with his family? Could it be because he wants to be 
like Stark, where he's free and has this dark life. Is is Stark a, a manifestation of his suicidal tendencies? Because he created this character that just wants to kill him. And we know that while he was drinking, while he had his writer's block, that he was suicidal. He took a bunch of pills. There's all of these things. It's like, okay, Stark could be seen as all of these things, but that's not what book this is. This is a Stephen King book where a pseudonym comes to life and kills a bunch of people. I feel like King was walking a very fine line in between those two ideas, trying to weave those together. I guess in a nutshell, I agree with Alan. Like the way Alan feels about him at the end of the book, that's how I feel about Thad. I agree. It, is it fair? No. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. There's so much that we, we don't know about why this happened. Right. So it is safe to say that, yes, we, we all agree it's unreasonable to, for you to be prepared for your pen name to come to life and start murdering people. We're not saying that, but it is at a certain point you have to question the power that brought this monster to life. Okay. And not knowing, and even that doesn't know if that power is within him, which is why I agree with Pangborn on the, you don't know if another monster will come out of that, because who's to say that that power doesn't still exist in Thad, that he could go through another spout mm-hmm. of darkness and create another creature, maybe not a George Stark. Because he's but- irresponsible oh, shit, with that power. guys. Oh, my brain. Just- <laughs> <laughs> Because we know that the darkness does still exist in him because we know his future. His wife leaves him. So, and uh, and he says that as soon as he's done with his business writing this book, and if he survives Stark, the first thing he's going to do is have a drink. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's So the darkness that was Stark still exists in him, and he goes on to... Maybe he did absorb some of Stark back into himself and becomes just the dark hole. I think Alan feels the way he does because, you know, when Liz has that line, part of him is crazy. I think Alan, it's not out of the realm of possibility for him that Thad would intentionally open that up again, bring back that monster or a different monster. I'm thinking now of the monsters like in not a meta in a metaphorical sense Mm -hmm. that like now he defeated the literal physical monster, but he still has these these monsters that he'll deal with in the future. Yeah, all the demons inside him. And he you know, we we talked about earlier that bill comes due and it comes due heavy Mm -hmm. on his life. He takes his own life. So you can't imagine. It's kind of shitty because that's just mental illness. He has PTSD. (laughs) And he needs his friends now. <laughs> uh, it just, it, and it just really sucks. The guys. closest thing he has to a best friend just burned down his house. <laughs> what a dick. Oh, man. He'll, he'll have to go hang. I hope he hung out with Raleigh a lot. <laughs> so that is the dark half, guys. Uh, let's go around real quick and, and give our ratings. I feel like I've been overly, maybe not overly, I didn't realize how different reading books for fun versus reading them with a critical eye would be. And I I tend to have a critical eye when I'm reading things to like dissect them. And I felt this book under the slightest bit of analysis (laughs) kind of falls apart. (laughs) 
I liked it. If you take it for what it is, just uh, a guy chasing after his murder friend, brother, uh, ghost. <laughs> it's very enjoyable. But if you, the, the, I just felt like the messages underlying the book. I would have liked a little more exploration of what it all meant. So I'm going to go ahead and give it a solid three out of five. Chambray shirts. Because of the conversation that we just had about metaphor versus reality, and, you know, I, I really do feel like those are sort of interwoven throughout the book. I, big surprise. I got to give it five shirts. <laughs> I told you. It's yeah, never not going to be. No, it's, it's so much fun. I mean, there are some problem areas, and I'm sure if Stephen King mm. went back and revised it, he would change some things, and we would probably be a little happier with the story. But that didn't take away from my enjoyment of yeah. it. No, so. I do have to say, on my scale of one to five, three is a solid I really liked this book. <laughs> Four is, I love this book. And five is, this book is perfect. Hey, you don't right. have to so, justify I'm, your stars. I'm, on, I'm on, the same, on the same wavelength as you, I just friend. want people not to be like, Ben's always giving them like, he hasn't rated anything five stars No, they're going to be like, CM does not read anything critically. <laughs> <laughs> At least you were upfront about it in the first episode, though. You were yeah. going to give them all fives. As for me, I would put it at a four blue chambray shirts. I really, Fair. I really loved the sections that I loved and there were, I still enjoyed the scenes that I was kind of drudging through of like, okay, we get it. Mm-hmm. Nothing's really happening, especially looking at it critically after I read it and then go back through for my notes, realizing that, Oh, we spent two chapters where literally nothing happened. Those moments. I still enjoyed them at the time of reading them. So yeah. All right, well, that's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please join us for our next episode, which will be us watching the movie, The Dark Half. Uh, So uh, for Benjamin Graham and CM Alexander, I'm Joshua Kahn, reminding you that writers invite ghosts. Maybe, along with actors and artists, they're the only totally accepted mediums of our society. They make worlds that never were, populate them with people who never existed and then invite us to join them in their fantasies. And we do it. Oh yes, we pay to do it. Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Once again, a big thanks to our sponsor, Constant Readers. If you haven't heard of Constant Readers, it's the most comprehensive Stephen King fan site on the internet. They read and watch every Stephen King-related book, movie, TV show, and comic, and then write all about it. Check out what they've done so far on their website, constantreaders.org, or find them on Instagram and Twitter at constantread12. That's C-O-N-S-T-A-N-T-R-E-A-D-E-1-2. Thanks for listening to The Dark Half Part 2. Join us next week for the movie. Not only is it a lot of fun, it's directed by George Romero. How much better can it get? As always, you can find us on Facebook or Instagram at Dairy Public Radio or Twitter at Dairy Public. We may use your comments or give you a shout out on an upcoming episode. Send us any questions or photos of your cats at dairypublicradio at gmail.com and like and subscribe to us on all the places you listen to podcasts. That's it for now. Goodbye, listeners.